So Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 10. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. May God bless his word to his people. There's a passage in the Gospels that I think about quite often. I often think about that scene in John chapter 6. And I often experience, really, that scene in John chapter 6. It's after Jesus has fed the crowds and he's addressed their spiritual hunger, uh, their physical hunger, but then goes on to teach them about their spiritual need and the spiritual hunger that they ought to have for God and for himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's at that point that the crowds, uh, very eager to follow when it was their physical needs that were in view, uh, now leaving Jesus. As they didn't want to or think they needed to consider what he was telling them about their spiritual need. And then we read these words in John 6, 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it's that question and that statement that I often think about and that I sometimes wrestle with in my own experience and in my own life. To whom shall we go? It's really the question, you could put it this way, where will you ultimately turn in your life? When things are happening, you're experiencing different things, where are you going to turn for help? for confidence, for assurance, for hope, for deliverance, for salvation? Where are you going to turn? That's a great question for everyone to consider. Where 
are we going to turn? To whom shall we go? Are you going to go to the, to, to the scientists? Lots of knowledge, lots of advancement. Uh, but secular science, their textbooks change every 10 years. Is your ultimate hope going to be in the medical community? Now, I'm very thankful for modern medicine. I love the saying of the person that said, if you're someone who romantically longs after the good old days, just remember one word, dentistry. Uh, We're thankful that we live in the age that we do in many ways. But it's also true that the best of doctors, the very best of doctors, have a 0% success rate. All their patients die. Are we going to turn to the economists? I was speaking with a top economist in Canada recently who is also a, a faithful, godly, Bible-believing Christian uh, who was telling me about all the predictions that had been made that would happen, people said, inevitably, as a result of COVID. Many of these uh, results, these predictions, playing into schemes and plans of people in the world of all kinds, as you may know, and how he said to a large degree, all those predictions have failed. It just didn't come true. Man proposes, but God disposes. Are we going to turn to the politicians? Psalm 146 tells us, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirits departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Where are you going to turn? To whom shall we go? Are you someone who's just going to turn to yourself? That you are somehow going to save yourself? You have days that you don't even want to get out of bed. I could never be my own savior, knowing who I am. For the wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus, and in Jesus alone, we have words of eternal life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And God, in his grace, has given us the written word. And the Bible, the written word, points to the personal word, Jesus. And so in Jesus, and the only way that we know Jesus truly is in the word of God, the Bible, we have the words of eternal life. You need to remember, though, what Jesus said. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. It's a blessing to have the Bible. But the blessing, the Bible cannot save on its own. Jesus must save. He is the Savior. And we must come to him in a personal trust in him as our Savior and our Lord. 
To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What a blessing to know Jesus and that Jesus would know you. Apart from saving faith in Jesus, the Bible could only condemn us. But trusting in him as savior, the word of God, the Bible blesses us. And we see it here as part of that armor of God that God has given us in this good fight of faith that is the Christian life. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What a blessing to have the word of God. Where else can we go but to the word of God and to Jesus of that word? Last time where we left off, we were considering the use of this sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we saw very generally that it was used in our lives, both for conviction of sin. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword and pierces. And also for salvation, that it brings blessing and salvation. And we only touched briefly last time on specific uses of the word of God. We could easily expand on the uses of the word of God because the word of God, the Bible, is the light by which we walk. It is the light by which we live out every aspect of life. And so in a sense, we could say, name any practical part of life and the Bible will speak to it. And so the practical uses of this sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, are as varied as the, the practicalities of life, every area of life, every relationship of life, the word of God applies and has been given to us for our help and blessing. And we could consider all sorts of, of ways that that's true, particularly in, as we think about the, the warfare, the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. In the good fight of faith, Christians use the sword of the spirit against persecutors, against persecutors. And this is something that we have known little of, most of us, I think, in Canada growing up in the past number of generations, but that will increase, no doubt. I just read uh, this morning even of a, of a very um, disturbing sign that was put up on a church in Ottawa uh, in terms of persecution. This is going to, unless God intervenes, increase in the West. Some Christians, of course, in history and in the world have faced real swords from persecutors, like Paul, who was likely beheaded in Rome. But when we face persecution, uh, even to the point of facing the sword, how do we respond as Christians? We respond with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Psalm 119, 161, rulers persecute me without cause but my heart trembles at your word. It's the word that's used in those times of battle. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? You see the blessing of the word of God, Psalm 56, verses three and four. So we have the word first defending our own hearts from fear but also then used to speak as God gives opportunity to the hearts of our enemies. 
And as we do that, as we have that sword of the spirit, the word of God, and bring it to bear against our enemies, we of course pray for their conversion, that the sword would be used for their conversion. Do you remember Saul of Tarsus was there watching the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen? But Saul heard Stephen preach. If he was there watching the clothes, he must have heard Stephen preach. And we know that Saul of Tarsus, by God's grace, became Paul, the great preacher and missionary. There's always hope, even for enemies. That's why we pray for our enemies. But if our enemies are not saved, then the same word speaks about judgment. Enemies of God will always be dealt with one way or another by conversion or by condemnation. Psalm 149, may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. And that will ultimately be true in a spiritual sense of judgment in terms of the gospel and the word of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says to Christians, do you not know that we will judge angels? And we'll be involved somehow in that great judgment. And so the sword against persecutors. We also should use the sword against false teaching, against false teaching. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take, every, uh, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so it's the word of God that comes face to face with false teaching. You need to know what's true. Boys and girls, you need to know what's true in order to identify and address what is false. Think of Acts 18.28. Apollos, he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Against false teaching and for the proclamation of the gospel, we need the sword of the spirit, the word of God. That's where our uh, words come from. That's where our truth and teaching comes from. We also use, of course, the sword of the spirit in spiritual warfare against our own sin. Against our own sin. And we can think about persecutors and we can think about false teachers, and that's not unimportant. But our own sin, in many ways, is, is your worst enemy. It's our worst enemy. It's like a spiritual fifth columnist in spiritual warfare. Someone who, who's gotten in and is trying to work from within. Our sin, remaining sin, is the enemy within the gates. And we need to have the sword of the Spirit to deal with our own sin, to remind us of our sins. You have set our iniquities before you, even our secret sins, in the light of your presence. When we open the light of the word of God, it exposes our sin. And that's good. 
if it leads us to confession and repentance? How can a young man cleanse his way? By living according to your word. Some of you know the name of Augustine. He was one of the early church fathers uh, who in his younger days led a notoriously immoral life. But then if you've read the story, he hears those children singing that song uh, in Latin, translated into English, that had part of the song that said, pick up and read. Sounds like a strange song for kids to be playing, but tole lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. And God used it in his life because he thought, I need to pick up the Bible and read it. And he did, and the Bible opened up to Romans 13, 14. Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And God used that to bring Augustine to himself and save him. The sword against our own sin. But we also can use the sword of the word of God against Satan's discouragements in hard providences, in hard circumstances. And Christians will have hard circumstances. We shouldn't think that we'll be spared from those. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial you're experiencing. Second Corinthians 7, 5, in the Apostle Paul, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest but we're harassed at every turn. Does life feel like that sometimes? You're harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, Paul says. Fears within. That's how he described his life. But we can use the word of God against Satan's attempt to magnify those discouragements in hard circumstances. Psalm 119.92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It's the word of God that will keep us, preserve us, and comfort us and strengthen us. Hebrews 12.4.5 might apply. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you As a father addresses his son, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Or even if it's not a case of specific discipline for sin in our life, we could turn to James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, helping you in the spiritual battle against potential discouragements in hard times. The promise that's there, that these things aren't meaningless, they don't come from a a cruel God, but they will be used for His glory and for your good. William Gurnall said, a word of promise is more necessary to a poor soul in a time of trial than warm clothes are to the body in cold weather. You need those promises, and they're found in the word of God. Well, the uses of the word, and and they're great. 
they're wonderful. They're, they're such a blessing and comfort. This is the right sword. This is the right sword. And it's useful in, in all those ways and more, in all those circumstances, in all those battles. But now here's a, a deeper practical question. Do you know how to use it? Do you know how to use it? Boys and girls, I wonder if you've ever heard of the, the organization 4-H. Have you heard of that? Some of you may have been in 4-H class. What do the H's stand for? I think heart, hand, head, and health. I think those are the four. I've never been in 4-H. But you know, people have, have thought about the Bible and they have four H's as well. The four H, the four H's of using your Bible. First, we need to learn how to handle the word, how to handle the word, to learn the word, study the word, compare scripture with scripture, sitting under good preaching, reading good theology, good helps. We need to, to do those things. Spurgeon reminds us, visit other books, but live in the Bible. Other books only insofar as we compare them with scripture and they help us in scripture. But that's what we need to do. We need to get better at handling the word of God. You know, Paul said this to Timothy as a minister, but I think it applies to Christians in general as well. Second Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We need to pray that God would help us to do that and that we would exert ourselves in that. That you would say to yourself, I want to be someone who really is able to handle the Bible. It's a sword. If you don't handle it right, you put a sword in the hand of someone that doesn't know how to use it, there's much a danger to themselves as to someone else. I was reading about a man named Tim Morehouse. He was an Olympic silver medalist in 2008 in the sport of fencing, at sword play, three different types of swords, but using those swords, fencing. He's been a fencer for 33 years. And he said that it takes between four and seven hours of training per day, five days a week, for him to remain in peak condition for competition as a fencer. If he's going to use his sword well and effectively, four to seven hours of training per day, five days a week. Now, we don't say that as some kind of rule for how long you have to be in Bible study every day. But just as an illustration that we have to work at handling the word of God if we're to use it well. Handle the word. Here's the next stage. Hide the word. Hide the word. Psalm 119, 11. I have hidden your word in my heart. How do you do that? You need to know scripture. And it's good to be memorizing scripture. I have a nephew who years ago was in boot camp in the military. And on one occasion, they had a, an all night, I think it was a multi-day, but a long nighttime exercise after that. And so... They were suffering from sleep deprivation. They came out of the bush and one recruit, 
in their group somehow didn't have his rifle with him. After that night in the bush, he comes out and he doesn't have his rifle. That wasn't a good outcome for him as a soldier, you could imagine. But you know, I had an old friend growing up who would say to me often, if I didn't have a Bible with me, he'd say, where's your sword? Where's your sword? As if, you know, I was unprepared to live life without the sword. Now, we don't always have to have our Bibles with us, but you see, if you hide it in your heart, you've got your sword with you. Wherever you go, you're not going to be, be caught unarmed in the spiritual battle. Hide the word in your heart. Third H, heed the word. Heed the word. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. you. See, it's not just that you know it, but that you heed it, you listen to it, you put it into practice, that we would just not be hearers of the word, but doers also. Or Philippians 3.16, to live up to what we've already attained. Handle the word, hide the word, heed the word in our lives, and lastly, hold forth the word. That not only this sword for our own blessing and protection, but that we would hold it forth to the world, to those who are lost. This is the church's uniqueness in the world. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. That's why a church that departs from Scripture, that, that leaves the Word of God out of its life and its preaching and its teaching, has become worse than useless in the world. You're reduced to a, a, a social club at best. This is our uniqueness, that we have the words of eternal life, that we are custodians of the Word of God, the pillar and ground of truth. So Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. But at the center of it is the word of God. That's what we hold forth to the world. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Ephesians 1.13. That message needs to be proclaimed. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's ministers and preachers we know called to that office, but it's also every believer. Every believer has this privilege and this calling in a general way 
Saul approved of their killing Stephen, Acts 8. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Then in verse 4 we read, And those who had been scattered, so it's not the apostles, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Handle the word, hide the word, heed the word, hold forth the word of God. But why would you? It's easier to talk about hockey or the weather. Why would you want to engage in this spiritual warfare with this sword holding forth the word of God? Well, because you love your neighbor. Because you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that love is shown and that love is motivated because there is one more great sword as the word theme in Scripture. The other great use of the sword in Scripture is by Christ himself in judgment. That's how many of this, these passages with this imagery, this is the theme. Isaiah 49.2, speaking of Christ, the Messiah, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And then so often in Revelation, speaking of Christ, in his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Repent therefore, Revelation 2. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 19. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. and His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Why do we preach? Because one day Christ is coming with a sharp sword of judgment and it will fall on people unless they're saved. One way or another, we must all engage with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. By God's grace, it will be used for saving and sanctifying in our lives and and used by us to advance and see victory against the spiritual darkness in our lives and in the lives of others. Before Christ comes with that sword out of his mouth. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What a theme in scripture. And we remember that scene with David in 1 Samuel 21, the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it, if you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what we should say about the Bible, each one of us. The sword of the Spirit, there's none like it. Give it to me. 
Do you know, I thought of the sword of the spirit and the word of God when I, I thought of Martin Luther, the, the German monk at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And, you know, towards the ends of his life, when he could have thought very proudly, it would have been sinfully, but proudly about what he had done for the Lord even. Because the Lord used him amazingly. And he could have been proud, but instead so humbly and rightly, this is what he said. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? He hated the fact that people were called Lutherans. He goes on, I simply taught, preached, and wrote about God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God.